day we'll go on. Oh, sorry, I just, we just had that further little outline of that wonderful name, the God-man, Emmanuel, the child born, the son given, wonderful counselor. He's wonderful and wise. The mighty God, he's mighty and majestic. The everlasting father, lasting and loving in his care for us. And finally, giving us peace and prosperity. Just before we start this morning, uh, let's pray together. Isaiah is a very big book, and it's fascinating. We're going to take a big jump this morning to Isaiah 42, but will you just look back to Isaiah 9 for a second, and then turn on to the page where it gives you Isaiah 13. Isaiah follows on from chapter 9 with a whole series of oracles, as he calls them, about various pagan nations. Do you see chapter 13, the oracle concerning Babylon? Chapter 15, the oracle concerning Moab. Chapter 17, the oracle concerning Damascus, that is Syria. Uh, I've already pointed out that quite often the name of the city, Damascus, for instance, means the whole country, Syria. Just as Samaria, uh, when we talk about uh, Samaria came and attacked, it meant the people of Israel, the ten northern tribes. Uh, so chapter 17, the oracle of Damascus. Chapter 19, the oracle regarding Egypt. Chapter 21, the oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. And so on and so on. Chapter 23, the oracle concerning Tyre. These are all the pagan and uh, apostate nations. And the general implication, of course, is that the Lord God of Israel or the Lord God of Judah is concerned with the whole world. And he is the sovereign of the whole world. And he has the whole world in his hand, as Beverly Shea used to sing. Oh, yes, it's absolutely true. And uh, he is the sovereign and he's going to rule and he's going to judge. And then Isaiah goes on and on, and the last four chapters of the first half of Isaiah, that is chapters 36, 37, 38, and 39, are really historical. And um, he talks about Sennacherib's attack upon Hezekiah, who is the last king given in our chart, 716 to 687. And you'll notice on the fourth column, there is our friend Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and he's the one who's talked about in chapter 36, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the disaster that was impending begins to fall. And finally, of course, Judah was taken captive, not by Assyria, but by Babylon. The Babylonian Empire had then risen. Now, Sennacherib is a very, very important Assyrian king. And just to give you an illustration of the sort of thing that is so thrilling these days, uh, there has been discovered two clay cylinders. This is rather small, so you can't see it very clearly. But on the right-hand side, top right-hand corner of that page, you see one of the clay cylinders uh, made in Assyria, uh, talking about Sennacherib and his conquest of Judah, and the name of Hezekiah is actually mentioned. 
you young people here, when you hear the BBC saying that the Bible is out of date and uh, inaccurate and uh, full of errors and full of contradictions, don't believe it. The BBC is 50 years out of date anyway on that sort of thing. And scholars today, you know, are giving up all this nonsense about the Bible being full of inaccuracies because archaeology is just proving that they're wrong. Mind you, there are difficulties in the Bible, of course, and there are apparent contradictions. But if you look at them carefully and thoughtfully and properly, they're not contradictions at all. Now, that clay cylinder, a hexagonal cylinder, is absolutely fascinating and only corroborates the um, uh, truth of the Word of God. On this page, on this wonderful uh, Bible atlas, done by a German writer called Gollenberg, uh, with the assistance of Professor Rowley and various other English writers as well. Here is a picture of Tiglath Pileser with his battering rams coming against the cities of Israel and Judah. So you see, the good old Bible, which talks about Tiglath Pileser coming along, he's confirmed by these actual um, uh, designs and things found in Assyria. Wonderful. So the Word of God is worth trusting. So those four chapters at the end of the first half of Isaiah are historical. Later on in his life, evidently, after a lapse of some years, there comes the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, beginning with that magnificent chapter 40, which we've all heard read, I hope, well in church. It's a magnificent passage for public reading, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. And the authorized version literature is far better than the RSV. But there it is. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Cry to her that her warfare is ended. And in those last 27 chapters of Isaiah, there emerges every now and again what the scholars call solo passages. Suddenly there erupts almost from this great mass of 27 chapters a theme about a servant. There are four such servant songs, as they're called, and we're going to try and deal with three of them uh, this morning. So will you turn to chapter 42? Here is the first of what I've called the servant son songs of Isaiah that he writes in the latter parts of the, of the book. First of all, chapter 42. The servant's son, I've called it the man for others. The servant of all and the servant of God. And the first one is Isaiah 42, 1 to 9, and the three words that just stick out to me in this passage are tenderness, truth, and triumph. Let's read it together. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. Does that ring a bell with you? What about Matthew 3? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, cried the voice from heaven when he was baptized. This is my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, 
That's the little flute, the little recorder, the little musical instrument made of a reed, crushed, cracked, bruised, but he will not break it. And the dimly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not fail or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given you as a covenant to the people. I have given you as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, and I, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And actually, I think we'll read on a little bit more. It's so thrilling. It's all about the servant. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. What does that mean? Well, Kedar was a nomadic tribe uh, that came from Ishmael. Ishmael was the sworn enemy of Isaac. In other words, as we might say today, the predecessors of the Arab nations, sworn enemies of the Israelis. But what happens? Oh, the inhabitants of Kedar, the sworn enemies of Judah and Israel, are going to be brought into the covenant. They're going to be saved too. There's grace of, the grace of God reaches to people who are right outside. What a mercy. Are you a Jew? Well, I'm not. I'm a Gentile. Thank God that God's grace extends to Gentiles. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. And most of us wouldn't be here. And so... Uh, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Uh, inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. What's Selah? Well, that's Edom. More sworn enemies of Israel. Yes, even the enemies are brought in by the grace of God. How wonderful is our God. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to Jehovah and declare his praise in the coastlands. Jehovah goes forth like a mighty man, like a man of war, he stirs up his fury. He cries out, he shouts aloud, he shows himself mighty against his foes, and so on. And so suddenly, there comes this first of the servant songs. This amazing passage about a, a, a perfect servant, somebody who perfectly does, does God's will, he can't be the servant mentioned in the previous chapter, chapter 41, verse 8. F but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, and if you read on and get to verse 14, you'll find that the Lord addresses this servant, Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel, 
it can't be the same servant. Because the servant talked about in chapter 41 is literally Israel. A very defective servant. This servant in chapter 42 and then in 49 and then in 50 that we look at this morning is a perfect servant. He completely does the will of the Lord. Uh, the suffering of this servant becomes more and more evident as the songs progress, all four of them. And uh, these descriptions of the servant's son are, of course, a wonderful pattern for us who are servant sons of the Almighty. If we become children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, as it says in John 1.12, we've believed, we've received, and we've become the children of God. We are now servant sons. Paul rejoiced in be being a son of God, but he also rejoiced in being a servant. In fact, more than a servant, a slave. He called himself the bond slave of Jesus Christ. And so these passages give us a wonderful pattern of course, in certain respects, it's quite impossible for any of us or any Christian to do the kind of service that this servant did, because he was unique. But there are patterns, nevertheless, that we can follow. So let's look at the first word here, the word tenderness. Uh, this servant's son is wonderfully and infinitely tender. Uh, look at verses 2 and 3. He will not cry or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed shall he not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not quench. And then I turn to Matthew chapter 12, verse 15. I'll just read it to you. Jesus did many miracles. Just previous to this quotation, which I'm going to read to you, he had... Uh, healed a man with a withered hand. He stretched out the hand. He said to the man, stretch it out. And it stretched out and was made whole like the other. And many followed him and he healed them all. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, behold my servant whom I have chosen. Isaiah didn't know who he was really writing about when he wrote, wrote about this perfect servant. Peter tells us that in, two Peter, in, um, in 1 Peter, two, chapter 1. The prophets didn't fully understand what they were writing about or who they were writing about. But now that he's arrived, the perfect servant, it becomes clear, and Matthew indicates this. He's my servant whom I've loved, my beloved whom my soul, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick till he bring justice to victory, and in his, names will the gen in his name will the Gentiles trust. And so he brings light and liberty again to people. He is tender, infinitely tender, and the cracked flute sings again and the flickering wick shines again as the perfect servant son touches the damaged life 
Are you and I very tender with people who've gone wrong? Or are we very condemnatory and censorious? This servant's son was infinitely tender. You young people, if you see an old lady in a very unfashionable hat, rather dowdy, down at heel, coming into your church, do you just give her one glance and then turn away and say, oh gosh, not for me? There should be in the heart of every one of us who are servant sons of the Lord God a tenderness towards people who may be a little bit broken, a little bit hurt, a little bit out of date. We older people, when you see a long-haired youth with badges all over him and dang bangles and bells and goodness knows what hanging all around him, do you turn away with disgust and horror? Or is there in you a divine tenderness and a longing to help, the sympathetic touch? This is what I mean when I say that this picture of the servant son is a wonderful pattern for you and me as servant sons. He was infinitely tender with the bruised reed until it was able to sing again, and the smouldering wick until it was able to shine again. And um, then in verse 7, for instance, further marks of his tenderness. He came and he, this is what he does, open the eyes that are blind, bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness, infinite care, loving consideration, sympathy, tenderness. And the servant of the Lord should be like that. Let me read a quotation from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 24. You might like to put the reference down while I read it. 2 Timothy 2, 24. Here's a practical application for you and me as servant sons. Paul says, the Lord's servant, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to one another forbearing, correcting people with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth, that they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Wonderful tenderness, isn't it? Gentleness, Paul says, forbearance, kindliness. When you meet somebody who's absolutely haywire, theologically, let us say, who's got totally wrong ideas about God and the Bible and uh, Christ and the resurrection and all the rest of it. What sort of attitude do you take to them? Condemnatory? Censorious? You're wrong. You're, well, what sort of voice do you speak in? Or is that a humility and a graciousness and a tenderness which is going to win them? It's the soft answer that turns away wrath. It's a great lesson, I think, for some of us to learn. And this is what he was. And what joy at his tenderness in the places where he was not originally known, as I've already pointed out, in Kedar and Selah 
these people who are right outside are brought in because of his tenderness and his love and they now become part of the kingdom of God verse 16 we didn't read it but here it is further marks of his tenderness I will lead the blind in a way that they know not in paths that they have not known I will guide them it's a lovely thing to see a man with a white stick tapping his way along the pavement and then evidently getting to the edge of the pavement and somebody a complete stranger I've seen it happen and you have he comes and takes the chap's arm he said look I'll take you across tenderness thoughtfulness sympathy and this is what this servant son is doing some of us may be blind still for all I know and we're certainly going to meet lots of blind people let's have that tender touch and take them across the road I will lead the blind in a way they do not know I will turn darkness before them into light and rough places into level ground so that there's a lighted path and there's a level way for the people who are go who've gone astray and this is his tenderness there's also truth look back to verse 1 this chosen servant in whom the Lord utterly and completely delights has the Spirit of God upon him he is filled with the Spirit uh, there's a very wonderful verse in John chapter 3 which you'll recollect many of you John chapter 3 verse 34 where it says that God gives not the Spirit by measure to the Lord Jesus Christ um, he whom God has sent utters the words of God for it is not by measure that he gives the Spirit meaning that the Lord Jesus of course had the absolute complete fullness of the Spirit he was totally dominated by the Spirit of God and everything that he said everything that he did was spirit controlled and the Spirit was upon him in mighty power and what a wonderful thing that you and I have that same spirit if any man have not the spirit of God says Paul in Romans 8 he's not a Christian at all he doesn't belong to Christ every single Christian has the spirit of God every single believer the moment you believe in Christ and receive Christ you become the temple of the Holy Spirit of course you do you can't divide the Trinity you've got the Lord you've got the Spirit and you've got the Father too of course so every Christian has got the Spirit I think I've sometimes heard people pray in prayer meetings oh God give me more of your Spirit now I don't want to be a purist or pedantic but you know I don't think that's a correct prayer do I ever say to my wife, Oh, darling, give me more of yourself. I've got her all. But the point is, about, with regard to the Spirit, has the Holy Spirit got all of me? More of your Spirit? I would suggest we ought to put it the other way around. Oh, Spirit of God, take more of me. Break down my selfishness and my pride and my self-will. The great command in the New Testament with regard to the Holy Spirit of God and the Christian is in Ephesians 5.18 go on being filled with the Spirit we've got the whole of the Holy Spirit 
has the Holy Spirit got the whole of us? Are we filled? The, the perfect servant son was, and that was why everything that he did was complete and perfect. So he had his spirit put, put upon him, and he was going to bring forth justice to the nations. And so truth, he's called, of course, the spirit of truth. Justice and truth were coming. Look at verse 4. It's a fascinating verse, verse 4. He will not fail. And do you know what the uh, Hebrew meaning of that word translated fail is? He will not burn dimly. The, the word he's used in the previous verse about dimly burning wicks. He is very tender with dimly burning wicks, dimly burning lives, lives that become depressed. Do you ever feel sort of down? Well, he's infinitely tender with you. He's not going to tear strips off you straight away. He's going to love you and care for you. But he himself is never going to burn dimly. He will never fail, and he will never be discouraged. And again, fascinatingly, that word discouraged is the same word used above about the reed. It means literally bruised. He'll never be bruised. He'll never take such a battering that he, as it were, flops. This servant is complete. He never burns dimly himself, and he's never bruised. Therefore, he's always able to meet a situation. And he's always able to bring truth and justice. He will not burn dimly, nor will he be bruised, till he has established justice on the earth. Our God is infinitely tender, but he's also inflexibly true. Are these two things contradictory? Certainly not. You can be tender and truthful. And God is both tender and true. He's both sympathetic and righteous. These are complementary sides, as you might say, of the same coin. We mustn't be tender at the expense of truth, and we mustn't be so concerned with the truth that we fail to be tender. The perfect servant is both. And so it goes on, verses 5 and 6. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people upon it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. The perfect servant is utterly truthful and true and devoted to the truth. He will never allow deceit or error. The nations, as it calls it here, a light to the nations. I've given you a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. In the old AV, it's the Gentiles. It means those who are not Jews to the many nations of the world. So that this perfect servant son was not only for Jews. He was for the, all the people and a light to the Gentiles. And, of course, the church is now carrying on the work that uh, the perfect servant son did in the days of his ministry on earth. Let me refer you to Acts 13, 47. Acts 13, 47, which shows that uh, 
we are the continuing servant sons of that great servant son. Uh, Paul and uh, Barnabas were speaking boldly in the city and uh, the, the, the Jews refused to believe. So Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken first to you. But since you thrust it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have set you to be a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the uttermost parts of the earth. Now that was originally said to the perfect servant. But Paul said, God has said it to us. And if God said it to Paul, he said it to you, and he said it to me. We are the ones to carry on the work of disseminating the truth and bringing the story of righteousness to the nations. Just a word about that middle phrase of verse 6, I have given you as a covenant to the people. There's only one person who could possibly be himself a covenant to the people. And what verse in the New Testament springs to your mind when you read that phrase? I have given you to be a covenant to the people. Well, my mind went to Matthew 26, verse 26. It's an easy reference to remember, 26, 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant. He was the covenant, and the covenant was sealed by his blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And here it said, I have given you for a covenant. And here's our Lord saying, this is the covenant. This is the new covenant, sealed by my blood. And so this, this is part of the truth. Perhaps one might safely say the central part of the truth that the servant of Jehovah was disseminating and preaching the story of the cross, the redemption of man through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally in this passage, there's the thought of triumph. It comes out constantly. Verses 8 and 9, for instance. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to graven images. Behold, the former things have come to pass. Yes, many of these predictions had already been fulfilled. But now new things I declare. All this about the servant's son was something absolutely new and wonderful. And I tell you them, and they, before they spring forth, I tell you of them, says the Lord through his prophet. Uh, look at verse 13. The Lord goes forth like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his fury. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. I wonder if that shocks you. It shocks a lot of young people today, who of course are very idealistic, as all young people are, and they all think they can put the world to right, 
and it's a wonderful thing to be young and to be idealistic. And they're dreadfully shocked when we read in the scriptures, the Lord is a man of war. The Old Testament says that in two or three places, in Exodus 15, for instance, after the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, Moses sang that wonderful song, Exodus 15, the, the Lord is a God of war. Uh, have you got an unbalanced picture of what God is like? Because this is part of the balance. God is at war, implacably at war, and will always be at war. Who with or what with? With evil, of course. God is inevitably at war always with evil. He is totally against error, enmity, evil of all kinds, and he will judge. Now this comes out constantly in the Bible. And I believe it's got to be true of you and me as servant sons of the Almighty that there is in us what I call a streak of steel. Did you notice that song that those two boys were singing yesterday? about never a man like this man. I think it's a lovely song. And in it there comes that phrase, a steel man, a man of steel. And you know, I believe the Christian has got to have that streak of steel in him, where error and sin and enmity against God is concerned. Is this contradictory to the previous two words, tenderness and truth? No. It's not contradictory, it's complementary. Where deliberate evil is going on, there's got to be steel, there's got to be war. And even you idealistic young people, you believe in war, really. If you saw a brute of a man killing, maltreating, beating a dog, would you just stand by and do nothing? Well, if you would, you're just not fit to live. Of course you'd resist that evil. You see, the Christian life is a balanced life. And the modern civilization has gone so soft, so soft, that it concerns itself far more with the criminal than with the person who's been damaged by the criminal. Now, I'm sure I've shocked some of you by saying that, but I believe I've got basis for saying it. God is a man of war against evil. And that war will never let up. And might I point out this, that God himself has taken the fight against evil right to the cross. And God has suffered the pains of war in his own person. And God has died in the person of his son because of that war against evil. Some of us in this room, and not only the men, some of you ladies were at war in this last world war. You may not have put on uniform, but you were right in the forefront of the war. And you were doing everything you possibly could to destroy that evil thing that caused the war. You suffered the bombs and the flying V1s and V2s and all the rest of it. Here in this country, 
Some of us put on uniform and we were out elsewhere. But to me, the issue was absolutely clear. There is something worse than war, and that is moral slavery and spiritual slavery. And if the Nazis had won, we should not be here today. And God is a man of war. And he ultimately, he will triumph completely over all evil. And this chapter begins to give an indication of that. The Lord goes forth like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his fury. He cries aloud. As he cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. God will triumph. Thank God for that. And all the horrors of uh, Belsen and Buchenwald and all those other horrors of the World War II, they'll be judged eventually. And all the horrors that we have committed in various parts of the world, they'll be judged. And God will triumph. It's a very balanced picture. Tenderness, truth, and triumph. Very quickly, let's go on to uh, chapter 49, the second of the servant songs. Here you've got three points, I think, just six verses. There's the preparation of the servant, the opposition to him, and the restoration which he's able to effect. Uh, listen to me, O coastlands, and hearken, you peoples, from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, and from the body of my mother he named my name. Thou shalt call his name Jesus. It, it said in the, when the angel came to Joseph, Matthew 1, Further preparation, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. What does that mean? My mouth was furnished with words from God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He make, made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. He said to me, You are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But as we read on, we see that this must be somebody, something more or somebody more than just the physical uh, uh, human Israel. It's a divine Israel. And so there was preparation made, and he was prepared for his work as a servant. Then there was opposition. Verse 4, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. There's opposition, you see. And verse 7, Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the Gentiles, the servant of rulers. There's a further indication, you see, of the opposition that he suffered, and we know well from the Gospels that he did. He was violently opposed by Pharisees and scribes. He was deeply despised and abhorred. And so the servant was prepared in mouth for what he was going to say, in life 
as to what he was going to do. He was like a polished shaft in the quiver of the, of the Almighty, an arrow. But there was opposition. He's called Israel, which of course means a prince with God, and he was an Israel to Israel, a heavenly Israel to the human Israel, a heavenly prince sent to be the servant to the earthly prince, so-called, who had failed so dismally. But this servant is not going to be disappointed. Verse 8, there's going to be eventual restoration. In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. I have kept you and given you as a covenant to the people. Here's that word covenant again. He is the covenant. The whole new basis of relationship to God now is in Christ. He is our covenant. I have given you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritages, saying to the prisoners, come forth, and to those who are in darkness, appear. They shall feed along the ways, on all bare heights shall be their pasture. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall smite them. For he who has pity on them will lead them, by springs of water will guide them. Does it remind you at all of uh, a verse in the last book of the Bible? Isn't it uh, Revelation chapter 7, verse 16? Let me read it to you. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water. Isn't it wonderful the way the Old Testament and the New Testament are integrated together? And that is practically a quotation from that very verse. And so you see the Son, the perfect servant Son, is going to bring about this restoration. And there's going to be a great homecoming from all around. And they're going to be brought into the kingdom of God. And uh, care and uh, love and prosperity will surround them. And they'll be guided to the springs of water which will never fail. So very shortly and very inadequately of course, chapter 49 verses 1 to 6, give us another picture, the second picture of the servant's son. His preparation, the opposition to him, but the eventual res restoration that will undoubtedly come. The third servant's son story is in the next chapter, chapter 50. Again, a very short little solo passage that suddenly emerges in the midst of other writings. Chapter 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him that is weary. Morning by morning he wakens, he wakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God helps me. Therefore I have not been confounded. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Do you remember the phrase? Which of you convinceth me of sin? You see, all sorts of threads of connection between this wonderful Old Testament and the wonderful New Testament. Who will, de who will declare me guilty? Um, behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so here is the third little song about this servant. And as one studies it more and more deeply, you realize what wonderful teaching is here, very, very quickly. Four parts of the body are made.